Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Cleo Wolfley Hazard, author of Underflows, Queer Trans Ecologies and River Justice, published this year by University of Washington Press. Dr. Hazard, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Well, my formal academic training uh, began in philosophy and then moved into fine arts and photography. And then eventually, after some stints in community college, uh, ended up with a bachelor's degree in geology, studying the Milltown Dam removal. And then in in grad school, I wanted to stay in the field sciences, uh, but really engage with local communities as they were looking at stream restoration, uh, issues of drought, and I really wanted to work with uh, animals and not just water itself. So I found my way to uh, the Carlson Lab at UC Berkeley. I was a student in the Energy and Resources Group, um, working with Isha Ray, who's a social scientist, and and figured out a way to craft um, a project that was grounding scientific studies of salmon and and local stream flows and and mutual experiences of water scarcity um, in local communities' priorities and and really doing embedded science with a a watershed um, council of of, uh, local residents. And um, from there, I I found through uh, my professor, Kim Tallbear, this field of feminist science studies. And this was kind of the glue that held everything together um, in terms of how could I bring together uh, interest in history and politics of rivers with this real passion for field sciences and critically thinking about grounding these types of studies um, in the lived experience of local communities, uh, place-based communities, tribal nations, and so the book really grew out of that work that I did um, as a PhD student, but brought in some of these side projects uh, that I had begun um, years earlier and continued along the way. So uh, queer performance, uh, interest in trans embodiment and, and different types of autobiographical writing that I did alongside my PhD um, eventually came together um, into this book, Underflows, which is try and in one sense kind of a chronicle of uh, my training as a scientist um, embodied as I am as a a trans person a queer person a white settler um, you know from the west coast of the of North America Um, and it's also a look at some of these latencies and uh, political and social tendencies that really shape and drive these social movements and um, kind of practitioner efforts uh, to revive and restore rivers. All right. So uh, this is a, a book about rivers, and I imagine we all think we know what rivers are, but could you tell us you know, what is a river to you? That's a great question. And 
you know, my conception of rivers, as I think everyone's is, is shaped by the river that I grew up um, near, which um, is a very special and also um, a, what we would call novel ecosystem in, in ecology is the Los Angeles River. And so for those who don't know, the Los Angeles River uh, flows um in for the most part in this trapezoidal cement channel and and almost looks almost dry and you may have seen it in any number of films uh, people often driving cars down the bottom of the LA river and then it it's floods and sometimes catastrophically during uh, rainstorms and so this was my kind of quintessential river and I always wondered like what where is the water like where does it go what's under under this river I would drive out into the desert and and think about water shifting and then when I you know when I moved um, to New Mexico as a young person to do on the ground landscape restoration with a local natural building company uh, we were thinking about infiltrating water far from the river in order to increase flows in streams. And so my idea of a river then started to extend not just this channel that you might see on the map or walk along, but also the water that's slowly seeping down through the ground and eventually reaching that channel. And then, you know, as I moved um, to different climates and through these rivers that actually flow most of the time, um, which is, I think, most people's concept of a river um, in California and in in Montana, where I did my undergrad, uh, I started to think more about uh, rivers in time. And so we might walk along a river and see it as as kind of a fixed channel or, or uh, you know, its banks and its water. Uh, but in fact, uh, that where it is right now is just one trace of where it has been and where it's going to be. And so now I think about a river as these kind of past, present, and future uh, movements um, of water that then uh, shape, you know, the movement of sediment and then plants respond and then their roots hold sediment and then reshape the, the flow of the river in turn. And then you have all of the, you know, the animal species that are, um, contributing their bodies to nutrient cycles. And so now my view of a river is maybe six or seven dimensions um, and and is really a field of relations. Okay. And so then to, to bring the title of the book into this, and you've mentioned a few times the concept of an underflow. So can you talk a bit about what that is both in the, the kind of the biophysical material sense and then also how you're using this idea conceptually in this a broader sense. Yeah, so in river ecology and hydrology, uh, we have this concept of the hyperreic zone. And so this is the area um, underneath the stream bed. So if you're walking along a stream, you're walking on sand or gravel. And in between those grains of sand or gravel or mud or whatever is there, there is water unless you're walking on bedrock and those types of channels don't have a hyperreic zone, but all these alluvial channels um, that have these, these sediments in them have this zone where there might be little bugs living down there. Fish uh, can swim down in spaces between gravel to escape drought or, you know, to cool off. Um, Salmon lay their eggs in these spaces. Other fishes uh, do. These rocks are often coated with microbial biofilms and slimes of different kinds that do a lot of, um, some of them are photosynthetic, some of them are breaking down. There's a whole ecology there, like on the surface of of the the rocks and and the, the little 
invertebrates that that might graze on those algae. And so uh, the hyperreg zone was a very powerful concept in hydrology and kind of linked hydrology and ecology in these ways of, of thinking about how water downwelling and upwelling and, and passing through under dry river bars um, is cooling off or transporting nutrients or uh, losing oxygen, gaining oxygen through microbial respiration and photosynthesis. So uh, this is to any river scientist, um, you know, whether they're a hydrologist or geomorphologist or fish ecologist or a aquatic insect lover, uh, is 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 aware of this concept of the hyperreic. And yet most people who aren't scientists don't really think about the flows um, under under the river. And many people when I was writing the book said, Well, why don't you just call it undercurrents? We know what undercurrents are. And and I said, No, well I underflows is if you take the Greek uh, hypo for under and reic for rios for flow, you know, it's actually different. The undercurrent is the part of the, the river itself that's under the surface that might be turbulent or uh, moving, you know, in a, a kind of non-Newtonian three-dimensional way. But but the underflow itself is actually that water that you can't even see, but yet is is really shaping, again, this river through time. And um, these, these underflows persist after uh, the, the surface flow dries up. So this was a big part of the science that I did for my PhD was how do salmon survive in these little pools uh, that are kind of scattered uh, along this dry stream bed. Um, uh, and they're sustained in some in some cases by these underflows. And other times these underflows are become so depleted in oxygen that they can actually you know, cause those pools to become uninhabitable for salmon. So, so part of the book is talking about some of these um, dynamics that ecologists and hydrologists um, think about that um, uh, to understand uh, how streams might be evolving in response to changes in flow. Um, and then um, another sense of of underflows um, I think of is is in terms of latent destinies, and this is a concept that July Hazard and I kind of co, um, well, July Hazard kind of came up with the concept of latent destinies, but it came out of an earlier project that we had worked on, um, which was a popular anthology that we co-edited with Laura Allen called Damnation, Dispatches from the Water Underground. And this was a popular anthology around uh, dams and and water protests came out in 2007. And, and, in that book, we really theorize uh, dams as this quintessential project of manifest destiny um, in terms of, you know, uh, staking out the frontier, enclosing terrain, um, trying to uh, trammel, harness, you know, wild forces and, and tame them and, and, and turn them to uh, seller uh, in particular, you know, these kind of masculinist engineers projects. And so um, July and I had written a, uh, a paper together around um, beavers as as an example of what um, July calls these latent destinies. So thinking with Freud, if there's something that's manifest, then there has to be a latent a latency under it. It's like the under underside or the underflow um, of that manifest destiny. And so then conceptually, I think about these all of these different place based projects where people are. Um, relating in different ways to the damage that's been done to rivers uh, by resource extraction, be it damming, levee building, water diversion, uh, forestry practices, urbanization, uh, contamination from industry. There's all of these, um, these harms that we can think of as 
you know, again, part of Manifest Destiny projects that are being, um, you know, resisted and reconfigured in in different ways uh, by these place-based communities. And so I really wanted to um, highlight these strategies um, in a a feminist way, um, in in a way of um, that feminists, geographers, and others have been thinking about a lowercase Anthropocene. So if uh, Manifest Destiny is, is, is kind of a more specific way of thinking about the Anthropocene in the context of uh, the U.S. and particularly the U.S. West. And then there's other um, other ways to think about these underflows um, in terms of um, queerness and transness as um, these, these kind of embodiments that are um, not typical amongst field scientists or, or, you know, when we find each other as queer and trans uh, ecologists, hydrologists, um, other natural scientists, um, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly how to bring that experience and those embodiments into river science. And yet from my own experience, I knew that that, uh, that, that difference did matter in terms of um, the way I was able to relate to other humans and other species in the field. And so I really wanted to think uh, theoretically uh, with queer and trans scholars um, of, of embodiment and performance um, who aren't usually thinking about the environment or about, um, you know, rivers or other, other, so-called natural features, right, Um, about how queer and trans uh, perspectives and embodiments and subjectivities could shape the study of and management of uh, the rivers and and the land. Yeah, well, I'm glad you didn't take those people's advice to change the title of the the book, because I I think the underflows gets at something something different. Um, And the, you know, the the hydrological definition of it uh, is definitely making me think because I live in Pittsburgh and we famously have the three rivers, but people always talk about the secret fourth river. That's the, the underflow uh, underneath our, our rivers um, in the city, because this is a very alluvial uh, geology that we have. And it's like the secret thing that you know about if you're really from Pittsburgh, you know about the Fourth River. Um, yes, and I think that many cities have these. I mean, there's a spring in the Powell Street BART station in San Francisco that there's a, you know, they have to constantly pump. It's like millions of gallons of water a day because they dug that BART station into the channel of an underground creek. And so, you know, there's this really great water that someone could be drinking or at least watering their lawns with that just gets pumped out of there. And I think, yeah, part part of my fascination with rivers really started in these urban contexts where we lay the city over the land and yet the water is still going to find its way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I want to now pick up on something you were starting to get to at the end of the the last answer here, um, which is about the idea of queer science and trans uh, science. So could you kind of define what you mean by those and, you know, sort of tell us what's what's straight about mainstream uh, science that you're you're counterposing this queer and trans science to? Again, this has a couple of different dimensions, and maybe the most straightforward one is just, you know, when I was a geology student in Montana, um, there's this rite of passage that is, you know, geology field camp, and everyone goes and stays in dorms and 
looks at rocks and for a couple of weeks and it just sounded so cool and I always wanted to do it and then I was just like man I don't know what dorm I could even be in and there's gonna it's mostly these guys and I'm older than them and it just like I, I just decided not to go because it just didn't it didn't feel unsafe but it just didn't it felt like it was gonna be just awkward or I would have to be hiding a part of myself to be there and it just didn't seem like worth it and then I but then I always kind of regretted because it was in this really cool part of Montana and I'm not you know I'm not a real geologist I'm like a kind of a geomorphologist but I always like wanted to have that that rite of passage and I think when you talk to queer and especially trans scientists um, who, who work in the field um, you know there are all of these just like little barriers or things that are just a little bit awkward like how do you um, change into your wetsuit and you know what about going pee and like all these things that um, when we talk to each other we talk about it and and it you know might seem like a little thing but it, it actually ends up kind of shaping like who who gets to go where and who gets to study what kinds of things and so you know, that's, that's one aspect of it. And I think, you know, feminine, now ecology, um, you know, I don't know the statistics, but if you go to the Ecology Society, Ecological Society of America meeting, like there's a lot of women there and there's a lot of women, you know, in, in ecology, maybe less so in hydrology and, and, and geology and some of these other fields that are pretty um, male dominated. And, and so, you know, it, it feels good to be in those spaces, right? And so I'm, I'm, I, it, part of it is like, what if, you know, what is the feminist move beyond inclusion of women, right? Would be, okay, inclusion of other gender, people gendered otherwise, right? So that's that's one aspect. Um, but another aspect of, of queer uh, ecology in particular is that, you know, in the humanities and and in geography, um, there there has been a conversation uh, in starting in the early two thousands um, around queer ecologies as um, you know examples range from like cruising parks um, that are you know, how urban spaces are figured as queer because of who inhabits them um, to, you know, analyses using queer and trans theory to look at um, novels that might figure the environment in some way or films, right? So kind of queer and trans um, eco-criticism that in many cases reduces the natural world um, to a metaphor and an ecology, or sorry, it, the natural world world becomes kind of a backdrop, and then ecology is a is is a metaphor in a way um, that I think many people um, are familiar with. So you know, we think of like the web of life, and we're all connected, and and this this. Um, something around, you know, biomimicry or, um, you know, these other ways that we can think metaphorically about about the natural world. And from my engagement with Indigenous studies um, and uh, also with, you know, feminist materialisms, I think it's really critical to not 
reduce the natural world, um, so-called, to a metaphor and to take, you know, other beings, um, other species, uh, and even elementals like rock and water and soil uh, as to consider them as as relations with their own animacy, their own um, ways of making making relations, right? And so I really wanted to make an intervention into this kind of nascent subfield of queer ecology to, on the one hand, um, take uh, plants and animals and rivers, et cetera, as, uh, as not metaphorical, but as real um, and, and as, as, as persons, as, as some of my colleagues in indigenous studies might say. Um, and also another move in that field was to um, take queer people out of um, queer ecology. So I went to a talk uh, at one point where someone was talking about a, a bear that had crossed the border from France to Spain. Um, and because they were transgressing a national boundary, that bear was queer. And I just was thinking, wow, there's so many ways you could have gone with the queer bear, but that is just one that is erasing, right? Queer people's experience and, and queer culture, right? And and all of these um, ways that we do transgress and make relations, but um, simply crossing a national boundary doesn't make that bear queer. And so I kind of wanted to really dive into and demonstrate ways that we could um, go to queer theory that really centered queer experience. And here I am especially, um, you know, drawn to and and impressed by and and want to be in conversation with queer of color theory um, to, yeah, put the queer, like, radical queer subjectivity, queer kinship, um, queer politics into queer ecology when we're theorize, when we're using queer theory to think about the environment and and the third this is kind of related to the earlier point but the third the third way that ecologists think about ecosystems like is in terms of models and so you know we do this thing where we relate we reduce uh, to understand these complex systems we reduce their dynamics to numbers and then we mathematically model the the relations among among these different plants, animals, water, weather, temperature, et cetera. Um, and this is like a, a sense of ecology that I, I think is really rich for feminist science studies um, exploration in a similar way that uh, Karen Barad has has delved into some of the quantum physics, uh, or Banda Subramaniam has delved into some of the like real nitty gritty of the biology. I really wanted to try to um, bring some of this, um, the mathematical sense of, of an ecosystem into the field of queer ecology. And then the trans part of it is a little bit different. So the, the trans ecology mostly comes in through um, Again, building on this work that I did earlier with July Hazard on latent destinies, that paper was focusing on beavers as um, you know these figures that could inspire uh, human engineers to to build dams differently. So uh, ecologists often name beavers as the quintessential ecosystem engineer because of the ways that they uh, their dams back up water, uh, they can raise water tables, grow lots of willow trees, you know, minks and otters and fish and birds all come to these beaver ponds and they can really trans- 
transform or transfigure as Delian and said, um, you know, these these uh, very degraded landscapes. And so people have been trying to partner with beavers to um, spark, you know, revitalization of, of riverine landscapes. And so um, we think it's part, one of the chapters of the book kind of takes that argument a step further to really um, think through uh, transgender embodiment as a way that non-trans river uh, restoration practitioners could think about um, these these interventions that, that we have to make sometimes. So sometimes we have to get bulldozers out. I was just on a call this morning with a colleague from the Karuk tribe and, you know, we're going to have to move, uh, remove a whole levy and move several million tons of rocks from one side of the river to the other and it's going to use bulldozers and make a bunch of scars in the landscape and i started thinking about you know these cuts and scars um in in a way that is similar to ways that some trans people um you know could reshape our bodies through surgery and so ava hayward um in her piece lessons from a starfish writes about her own gender transition um, and specifically her bottom surgery as, um, you know, she's not um, transforming from a man into a woman, rather um, through the surgeon's, you know, cuts and folds that he's making in her body uh, are bringing her towards herself through herself, or she says towards myself through myself. And so I was thinking, what if we could um, think about what if we as river restoration practitioners, right, people who are working on the land could think about uh, the watershed as a kind of trans body and and where these agents that get to kind of make these interventions that let the watershed be more itself. And that might, if we're collaborating with beavers or collaborating with salmon or with these other willows, with these other species, with fire, um, we can help shape, but yet not control, right, that becoming of the watershed. And, and to me, this is, um, helps us get away with some of, uh, get away from some of these binaries that are really central to manifest destiny thinking and that have um, tainted the environmental restoration movement. So a lot of settler restoration has this uh, idea of a reference state where we're going to try to get back to some um, Edenic pre-settler imaginary that often also uh, erases Native peoples and and their very active management um, from the landscape. And, and, And also then we have all these novel species and novel ecosystems and new ways that you know, that we're using um, the landscape now. And um, I think that this trans, uh, this watershed body um, figure can can help us kind of reconcile some of the transformations that have already taken place and the ones that are, um, you know, emerging uh, more and more rapidly with climate change and give us a way to um, unsettle in some ways um, by becoming like more humble reshapers of this body that we are also a part of. Yeah, I, I love that concept of thinking of like the river as like a trans body. Um, it was one of those kind of like mind blowing <laughs> moments when you laid that out in the, in the book. And, you know, such a great challenge to some of the like body metaphors that get used for ecosystems and stuff that have a lot more problematic connotations of like virgin landscapes and those kinds yes. of things. Um. So then you, you mentioned a few times in that uh, answer about your work with indigenous communities. And so this is a, a thread through the whole 
whole book of talking about indigenous science, but from a, a clear position of yourself as a, a white settler ally. So you're not yourself trying to do indigenous science, but you're engaging in what you call a politics of solidarity. Uh, so can you talk a little more about uh, that relationship that you have with indigenous communities and with uh, indigenous society? Uh, indigenous science and kind of how you make your work as a, a white settler, um, you know, work in, in conversation and in collaboration with uh, indigenous people. Yeah. I like to think of myself as an accomplice. So um, this has some of the, you know, the connotations of um, things that might be, you know, slightly outside uh, the, the, um, the taken for granted, um, not to say that we're blowing up dams uh, because we're not, but uh, that we're, we're we're trying to push the limits of what can be done uh, in terms of river management, fire, um, all of these these uh, ways that Native peoples um, of North America and beyond have uh, managed the landscapes where they've lived since time immemorial, and so. Um, so one of my early influences, um, even before becoming a scientist was to work on the ground in land restoration. And one of my mentors was Louis Hena from Tsuke Pueblo. And, uh, he taught me how to drive a backhoe and, uh, he was a permaculture practitioner, uh, really working kind of on a holistic scale to try to restore the lands there, um, north of Santa Fe around, around Tsuke. And my ideas around restoration, I realized later, were very shaped by this um, specifically, you know, Pueblo perspective, but but that is shared, I think, um, amongst many Native nations that um, they've always practiced uh, management in this reciprocal way, that that was interrupted by settler colonialism, that you know, the practice of restoration is, is is an exercise of sovereignty and that, you know, Western science and Western engineering and, and um, all of these things are, are, are tools that can be used within a Native context and within inside of Native protocol in a way that they then become Native science and Native engineering. And so uh, this was also... Yeah, shaped by some of my time um, uh, at Black Mesa and the Navajo Nation doing uh, solidarity work um, against uh, the the mines uh, on Black Mesa and just um, thinking about um, the ways that technologies, um, you know, they're not necessarily Western just because they originated in England, but rather like a, a a, you know, a bulldozer is a tool, just like a pencil is a tool, and when it's wielded in a certain way, um, it, yeah, it, 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 the the outcomes can be really different. And so, um, during my PhD work, I was part of a, a graduate student um, watershed governance group, and uh, two of my colleagues, Civil Diver and Dan Sarnowitziki, were working up on the Klamath River. And we went on a field trip up there 
um, as a, just a group of graduate students working on water broadly, um, water governance, and made some connections with the Karik tribe. And at the time, I didn't have resources to really offer um, to the tribe, but I was very interested in, uh, I was familiar with the Klamath from writing about dam removal in, in uh, my book, Damnation. It was really um kept thinking about um, those relationships and, and just building on them informally through visits um, until I was able, um, you know, when I got my tenure track job to actually offer something concrete in terms of um, funding, um, in terms of field, um, this field course that I co-developed um, with uh, Lisa Moorhead-Hillman, who's a Karuk educator and ba- basket weaver, um, and she and her partner, uh, Leif Hillman, who's ceremonial leader at, at Tishanik uh, in the uh, Orleans area of the Klamath, um, have become my my close um, collaborators over the last uh, six or seven years on a series of of um, explorations that span um, like landscape architecture, fluvial geomorphology, hydrology, ecology, fire, fire ecology, and, and ethnobotany, among other fields that we're engaging. But what we're really trying to do is um, restore a mining-impacted reach of the Klamath River um, and develop a process that could be used to restore mining-impacted reaches of Klamath and, and many other rivers, but that centering um, Karuk science, Karuk protocol, um, and the knowledge and desires of local community members. And, and in that case, um, you know, the, the, the real goal of this river restoration project uh, is cultural revitalization uh, and intergenerational uh, knowledge transfer, as Lisa, Lisa and Leaf uh, like to say, uh, between elders and youth. And so, uh, you know, we have a part of the project that is, um, you know, mapping and flying the drone and getting high resolution top- topography and modeling how removing this levy will affect um, this road that's washing out across the river, threatening homes, um, or that will uh, revitalize some of the willows that basket weavers rely on that have become senescent. This project at Toshanik is involving a lot of different disciplines from landscape architecture to fluvial geomorphology, ecology, ethnobotany, um, to reconnect the river, but to do it in a way that is um, starting from uh, Karuk people's relationships to one another on the land and this was a, a the, the Karuk tribe has most of its the land that was um, reserved um, in the treaty era was never turned into a reservation was um, instead turned into national forest and so now in order to access um, their resources the Karuk tribe has to form all of these relationships with many different government agencies um, as well as you know, nonprofits and universities to kind of get the funding to do the management um, on their lands. They don't have a land base um, as such. They have a small a small land base for housing and, and things. So Tishanik, this area we're working, is a, a really important. It's one of the three urban centers, ceremonial centers, um, and also a place that was um, out of tribal ownership until 2015. And beginning in 2015, uh, when it was returned to the tribe, uh, there was this opportunity to reconnect the river. And so uh, I write about this in the conclusion um, just a little bit, but how um, some of these conversations across um, 
Native science and queer ecology have been really productive. And a lot of my thinking has kind of grown about what queer ecologies might be, have grown through these conversations with Lisa and Leaf and others um, in that community um, around um, these touch points between indigenous notions of kinship and queer queer ways of making family. Um, And also, yeah, different political solidarities that have... um, that, ha- that have occurred through, you know, different queer people's involvement in American Indian movement and the fish wars and other, other struggles. So some of these connections are, are kind of directly relational and some of them are more um, conceptual, but, but I found it really, really rich um, with both with my, you know, kind of collaborators and with other um, colleagues in Native studies to think about what what are the different disruptions that that queer theory and and native theory around um, you know kinship can make to settler colonial white supremacist heteropatriarchal structures um, and and similarly you know or kind of also um, you know what are the yeah the the trans theoretical interventions into um, notions of gender that might be able to act in solidarity with with um, you know native masculinities, femininities, um, other other ways of of being um, embodied you know as as a gendered person. And so uh, it's also been really interesting you know working in these rural uh, spaces and bringing because of who I am and who my students are, um, I end up bringing a lot of queer and trans students um, to these rural communities. Um, and some of them, uh, you know, there's different politics and kind of different. You know, the Mid Klamath is like kind of tribe and a lot of hippies, and then I work in the Scott Valley, which is you know Court, uh, Quartz Valley Indian community, and a lot of pretty conservative ranchers, and I've brought. A lot of queer and trans students to both of these spaces and um in say we're here doing queer and trans ecology um let's let's move this river back and that you know makes its own um ripples or waves or whatever water metaphor you want to want to use right in into those local local circumstances all right. Well, I think we've given our listeners a, a good sense of what this book holds in store for them. Uh, so to kind of wrap up our conversation here, uh, can you tell us about what you're working on next? Yeah. So I have this project on the Klamath that I talked about a little bit, and then I have a new project uh, here in Seattle on the Duwamish River that's also um, super exciting to me. So the last chapter of the book uh, goes down to the short the, the shores of the Duwamish, which is a very industrial river, a super fun site, um, and and thinks with um, Jose Munoz's theory of the Brown Commons about you know what uh, how the how in what ways the Duwamish is a queer ecology and in what ways queer ecological thought could uh, reshape the ways that people are trying to restore that river. And so when I was uh, first moved to Seattle five years ago, I spent a lot of time in the Duwamish, um, just, you know, poking around, biking, canoeing, um, uh, you know, crawling around on the, the, the mud flats looking for detritus. And then 
was kind of waiting for an opening or an invitation to actually work in the restoration space there. And um, as I was writing this chapter, you know, kind of theorizing uh, the Brown Commons as as a queer ecology along the Duwamish, uh, this this other project started to develop. And so I'm working with a number of different grassroots um, environmental justice groups with the Duwamish tribe and then with uh, colleagues uh, from a couple of different campuses at, uh, at University of Washington, um, namely Melanie Malone, Dr. Melanie Malone and uh, Dr. Catherine D'Almeida. And so we have this super exciting project that is doing community-directed um, contaminant sampling and, and kind of community science uh, around this uh, Duwamish River. And because of those partnerships and, and more work with youth, there's a lot of opportunities to bring in some of the artistic methods that I that I highlight a little bit in the book. Um, and so photography and, and some performance and, and other other ways of, of reimagining this urban space. So I'm not exactly sure where that's going as, as an academic project, but it's it's super exciting to um, yeah to be working in the urban area um, again and, and focusing on um, these intersections between arts and sciences and, and uh, community action. Yeah, that, that sounds exciting. I'll be keeping an eye out for, for that, uh, that new work. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. You just heard a conversation with Cleo Wolfley Hazard, author of Underflows, Queer Trans Ecologies and River Justice, published this year by University of Washington Press.